Good evening. Whoa! <laughs> that was awesome. Good evening. Um, if you're new to church, my name's Alex. Uh, it's my privilege and uh, my job to lead this church. Um, and we are now today at the end of a series called Breaking Barriers. And this whole series was intended to address major barriers that either people have coming to faith or Christians have going deeper in their faith. And we've looked at, is, Christian, is the Christian life really fullness of life? We've looked at, can you prove the resurrection of Jesus? We've looked at, is the Bible really good? What about pain, suffering, and sickness? Last week, we looked at, what do we do with secret sin? And the point of a series like this is, a bit like what Anna was saying a minute ago, is not just to answer every possible question that we might have, but to create an environment where those questions are so welcome. And a lot of people come to church, and you might be one of these, and you harbor doubts or questions, and you feel like they restrict you from things like baptism or involvement in church or leadership in church. And it's my desire as the pastor of this church to foster an atmosphere that gives us permission to hold these tensions and be upfront and honest with each other and be like, yeah, me too. Yeah, I struggle with that. Yeah, I've got that doubt. Yeah, I've got that question too. And today's topic is the hardest one, which I've saved to last, because it affects so many of us in our church and every church. And one of the issues with this topic is I've never heard a sermon about it before, and so it's quite hard in preparation. Also, if you're new to church or exploring faith, then you are also affected by this, either indirectly or directly. And we're talking today about church hurt. Yay. <laughs> Can't wait. Church hurt is the unresolved pain experienced by someone in church, um, by, ch by someone in church leadership or a church community that has resulted in you ultimately leaving that community potentially. An extreme case, it results in people leaving the church altogether. And even more extreme, it, it, it sometimes results in people hanging up their faith altogether and saying, you know what, I call it quits. But before we dive in, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that your word speaks to us today in 2023 in Liverpool. And Lord, I thank you that your word uh, continues to speak new truths to us, continues to reveal more of your love and your power and your grace for us. Lord, would you give me wisdom? Would your spirit guide me? And would our hearts be soft to hear your words today? In Jesus' name, amen. My first experience of church hurt was when I was in the queue to watch King Kong with my mum. Um, I decided to do what a lot of um, teenagers do when it comes to buying presents for their parents. They buy them stuff they could easily afford and do in their own time. But anyway, I chose to take my mum to see King Kong. Um, and I'd been a member of a church for about 18 months. And like every Christian boy in the noughties, I'd also bought a new acoustic guitar and learned about four chords and started leading worship on a Sunday in the band. Now, in the queue for King Kong... Uh, just a couple of people in front of me, I noticed that there was a few older boys from church. And there were boys that were a bit cool, I looked up to them a little bit, they were, um, uh, they, they were a bit older, they're a bit wiser, I thought, and they didn't see me, and because I was in the queue uh, with my mum, taking her to King Kong, I thought, I don't want to keep it that way, because it's a bit embarrassing as a teenage boy taking your mum to King Kong, taking her to anything, to be honest. In fact, I remember taking my mum to the Avatar, in 3D because I was convinced, well, I, I, I thought it was so good that I didn't want mama to die before seeing a 3D film. <laughs> She's not that old, but I was like, mum, 
I don't want you to die before seeing a 3D film. Let's go see how Anyway, um, these boys were a couple of people in front of us in the queue. And, um, and they didn't hear me. And, and, and then I heard, but I could hear their conversation. And they were talking about our youth group. And they were kind of going through different people in the youth group. And I was like, this is an interesting conversation to listen to. And then out of the blue, one of them said, Alex, that's my name. And they said, I'd love to wrap his new guitar around his head. Not very nice, is it? Not very kind. The thing is, I was a new Christian. I had the joy of the Lord in me. The Spirit of God was working patience and grace in me, self-control deep within my heart. My mum, however, she hadn't started going to church at all. She was fuming. I had to drag her. My mum's dangerous. And I had to like, drag her away and, and go to this confused cashier to buy a ticket and literally pray that they were off to see something else, like War of the Worlds or whatever else was on at the time, because otherwise their experience of King Kong would have been a 4D one. Like My mum was rageful. Now, why is this church hurt? It's a silly story, but it's church hurt because it is pain experienced by people who on a Sunday would claim to be pursuing one type of lifestyle, and my experience of them was out of whack with that standard. And, and you might be saying that's classic youth group stuff and kind of expected as you mix adolescence with discipleship, and it's always going to be confusing, yes. But I've also been part of a church community when my mentor, who was a prominent Christian leader and author, had an affair. And the pain caused by that was incredibly more visceral, and it caused a deep kind of grief that had dangerous rippling effects. When someone who is looked up to by so many reveals a secret side to them that's so out of kilter with this public picture of them, you lose confidence, assurance crumbles, and you're left asking yourself the question, if that persona was false, then what was all the goodness surrounding it? Was the teaching, the prophetic gifting, the leadership, the blessing, was that stuff all false too? And one of the biggest barriers people have coming to faith is because there's an opinion that Christians are narrow-minded, judgmental hypocrites. People who claim one thing and they live another. And this is close to the bone, and it's, it's not a sermon that I've ever woke up thinking, oh, I really want to preach about church hurt. You know, oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. But it's one I need to. Because I know for a fact that even in this Merseyside area, this small little area that we live in, there are a number of pastors who have been unfaithful husbands and been caught or had to confess publicly. Pastors whose private racist views became public. Pastors who haven't been the same behind closed doors as their public persona would have you believe. And during the two years of the pandemic, it seemed globally Major Christian leaders were being found out to have been found cheating on their wives, having devious sexual private lives or coercive leadership behaviors that led to an all-time low when it comes to trust in church leadership. And now, when people think of church today, what comes to mind is not the light and hope of Jesus or a community transformed by the love of God or a Holy Spirit-empowered people. So often, those outside the church just think it's a place full of scandal, abuse, corruption, hypocrisy, and hate. And Brennan Manning, who wrote two books that I love, The Ragamuffin Gospel and Abba's Child, says this. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. He says, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, if you've been hurt by Christians or a larger community belonging to the church, the first thing I want to say is this, that you are not alone that many, 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 many people have experienced some kind of hurt by people who confess to following Jesus. And the good news is this, that Jesus never spoke more harshly in the Gospels to anyone other than those he called hypocrites. 
in Matthew 23, we have this list of seven woes. He's like, this is bad news if you are. And, and the, the, the majority of them are directed towards hypocrites. And he says this in Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 17 times in the Bible you'll find the word hypocrite. And every time it is Jesus addressing hypocrisy. But this word wasn't always used for kind of moral behavior. It's actually a word taken from Greek acting. The word hypocrisis refers to the wearing of a mask for a particular occasion, for a particular character, and then changing between masks for different characters. And Jesus is using this word to describe the way that people are performing religious acts when behind the scenes you're a different person. Now what Jesus was confronting here was not the actual sin itself. He wasn't saying woe to those who binge terrible shows on Netflix or woe to those who swear when they stub their toe. He is saying, woe to those who mess up and act as if they don't. Woe to those who who mess up but actually tell everyone else, nah, nah, I'm pretty good all the time. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 23, 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Oh, wow, Jesus, tell us what you really think. Like This is Jesus of like fluffy sheep and little kids running around him and healing cool people. If you've ever been frustrated or hurt or confused by those who claim to live a certain way and then they do not, Jesus is frustrated and pained by it too. Jesus got your back and Jesus hates it. So let's have a look first at why do Christians get it wrong. Well, the first reason why Christians sometimes get it wrong is some, Christ- some people who hurt people in church aren't actually Christians. We've got a massive revolving door in churches, and there are all kinds of people, people of faith and none, people who are exploring faith, people um, who are new to church altogether. But there are some people who haven't been transformed yet by the love of Jesus. And some of these people may be a member of the church, they may even carry a Bible, they may be active in church community, but they have never been converted by God's love. And Titus puts it this way, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. It's so important to remember that going to church does not make you a Christian. Following Jesus does. Claiming God or going to a Bible study or filling your diary of Christian activity or listening to worship music on Spotify or having a Bible verse on your Instagram bio does not make you a Christian. Even believing in God does not make you a Christian. Following Jesus does. The word Christian literally means little Christ. Sometimes we're hurt by people in church who aren't actually Christians. All the abuse cases we hear about, both spiritual and sexual abuses in the church felt by so many is a prime example of what Titus is saying. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They simply do not know him. Sometimes so-called Christians fall short because they aren't really walking with him and following Jesus. The second category of people that sometimes get it wrong is sometimes Christian, they are Christians, but they're just not mature Christians. They're Christians, but are still young in their faith. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. The reason some Christians do the wrong thing, or they betray your trust, or they break your confidence, or they hurt you, or they cause you pain, 
These guys are Christians, but are still developing in their faith. Let me give you a funny little example about it, slightly embarrassing. But when I first became a Christian, I was 16 years of age. I didn't have any faith upbringing. I hadn't been to church before at all. And I was overwhelmed by the friendliness of the people. Absolutely overwhelmed by the smiles you might have got them as you came in, if you're new to church. The way that people were so friendly, so interested in my life. Now, if you ever watched The Inbetweeners, that's what I was like at school. And then suddenly, I was like popular in church land. And, I, and as a teenage boy, I was also very intrigued by how friendly the girls were. Very, very friendly. And I wasn't picky or choosy, and I started to date my way through the youth group, and it got quite bad, and, um, and to the point where I dated this one girl, and then um, a couple of weeks later, I started dating her best friend, and uh, it was all kinds of awkwardness, until the vicar um, asked me if we could go for coffee in a garden center. Now, if anyone asks you to go for coffee in a place that doesn't naturally sell coffee, you're in trouble. Now, as an adult who's got kids, I love going to a garden center for a latte, but, um, but back then, I knew I was in trouble. And he sat me down and he said, Alex, if you date one more person that you do not intend to marry, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the youth group. Because what he was experiencing was this wake of girls that were filling up ministry time because of another time where I'd take them out for a date and said, no thanks, I'm gonna, can I meet your best friend, please? It was awful. But the thing is, that I wasn't mature in my faith. And whilst this is an excuse for bad behavior, please don't hear it like that way, it's helpful to remember that not all Christians are at the same point. Not all Christians are mature Christians. And so it would be like saying that just because my youngest child wets the bed, that we are a family of bedwetters. Now, we know that's not true. (laughs) Trust me. I do not wet the bed yet. But like, just because my youngest girl does doesn't mean we're a family of bedwetters. We're at different stages in our maturity. She just hasn't learned yet. She hasn't developed it. She hasn't learned how to control her bladder. And sometimes we find ourselves disappointed, hurt, and pained by Christians who aren't fully mature Christians. They're babies in their faith. They might have been going to church for 40 years, but they haven't yet got close to Jesus. They might have been going to church all their life, but actually, they're still on a journey. And the third category is some are Christians, and they're maturing, and still they mess up. Because we are all fighting a battle, as Paul says, between sin, the world, and the devil. Some are tempted into a slippery slope of sin and give in. Remember that it's everything the enemy wants to do, to undermine the community of God, to give people every reason not to follow Jesus. And the easiest way to undermine all that the kingdom of God is doing is to undermine and hit the leadership of a church. Some of these are not card-carrying hypocrites who lead churches a mess up. Some of them aren't intentionally building up for themselves multiple personas to appear great, but some just in a moment of tension give in. They may genuinely love Jesus, but in a moment of anger, tiredness, loneliness, hunger, insecurity, they give in to temptation to lie or to speak harshly or to betray their marital vows. And again, this is not an excuse. But even the most faithful Christian is vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy. No matter how mature you are, you are vulnerable to temptation and sin. And the minute we think we aren't vulnerable, we have to watch our back. The minute we think, oh, it would never happen to me, We have to watch our back. The problem is this. We will all let each other down. All of us. But one of the things we do when we let others down is we blame our circumstance, don't we? We take someone out of coffee and say, I'm really sorry I did that. But, you know, I was hungry. But I was tired. But I was stressed. I'm really sorry. Blame our circumstances, the things that surround us. When other people hurt us, we go after their character. And we're like, they're a bad person. They are a sinner. They're evil. 
They are rotten to the core. They are false teachers. They are hypocrites. They are brood of vipers. And in psychology, there's this condition of cognitive bias called illusory superiority, which is this idea that if you were to rate yourself on positive attributes, such as honesty or kindness or friendliness, if you were to rate yourself, you will always probably rate yourself above average. Now, any mathematicians in the house will know it's impossible for everyone to be above average. And so we'll always think we are friendlier than actually how other people perceive us. We'll always think we are kinder than the way other people will perceive us. We'll always think that we are um, nicer, that we are more honest than the way that other people perceive us. Apart from one, um, there's one exception to this whole thing, which when a major study was done globally, those from an East Asian background are the opposite. They don't see enough value of themselves. So East Asians in the room, big up yourself, we love you. But it's fascinating that in the West especially, that we will always think we are better than the way that people perceive us. The point is this, that we have to be careful when judging others, their downfalls, their messes, as it is probably true that we aren't actually as good as we may think we are. When a Christian life fails, when they mess up, when they sin big style, we get terribly, terribly upset. We get confused and we get shocked. But here's the truth. God isn't surprised at all. God isn't suddenly sitting in his throne being like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that could happen. I had no idea that was going to happen. He knows we are prone to sin. We are born with a propensity to sin. We mess up because we are sinners in need of redemption. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 103. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. We're dust. We are weak. We mess up. We are dust. We say the wrong things. We do the wrong things. We hurt people. We are dust. Did you know the King James Version says we are butt dust? We are butt dust. You are butt dust. I am butt dust. And maybe you've been hurt by someone, a Christian, and maybe just our expectation was too high. Maybe you're expecting something out of someone that was never going to always be like Jesus. And some people will, I can guarantee, some people will leave this church because of something I say or do as a leader. Maybe I say something sarcastic or I miss the mark and say something that's inappropriate or I'm not what people need at a particular season in their life. And do me a favor, remember that I am just a bag of dirt. I'm a messy collection of dust. That's what I am and that's what you are too. That's what we all are. We came from dust, redeemed by the love, power, and blood of Jesus Christ, but we are all still capable of showing our dusty, sinful selves. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, you'll um, probably think when you look at the book of Acts, you, you might say, you might know this phrase, oh, wouldn't it be great if we just went back to the Acts church and the Acts 2 community and everyone sees it with like rose-tinted spectacles, like, yeah, brilliant, I'll just take us back there. They struggle with this stuff too. Paul and Barnabas, major players in the missionary world at the time, says this in Acts 13. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. That means they were going out preaching and it was having ripple effect, echoing out into all kinds of towns and people were being converted by the love of Jesus. But the Jewish leaders, what they did is they incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So they gathered the Christians in the room, they gathered the Jews in the room, they gathered the, anyone who feared God and had some influence, and they gathered them, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. 
So they got around them and they said, right, you're gone. You're going. We're not going to listen to you anymore. So what did Paul and Barnabas do because of this? When they experienced their version of church hurt, what did they do? Did they quit church? Did they give up on God? Did they start a YouTube channel about the failing church and why deconstruction is the answer? Did they start a podcast? No. They could have done. Well, I mean, they couldn't have literally set up a podcast. But they would have all done all that stuff if they focused on the offense. Yet in their mind, they separated their experience of the church and the experience of the people. We have to tell ourselves when we are hurt, I wasn't hurt by the church, I was hurt by a person. The church didn't let me down, a person did. The church didn't betray me, a couple of people did. God didn't let me down, a bag of dust did. And now I I totally understand the logic. The person let me down, they belong to a church or represent a church, I can no longer trust the church. And we do that with church, don't we? But we don't do that with restaurants. We don't go to a restaurant and have a bad meal and then say, I'm not going to eat food anymore. That'd be bananas. We don't listen to music and go, oh, that's a terrible album. I'm no longer going to listen to music anymore. I'm giving it up. We go back to those things because of the promise of something better. We say, you know what, I'll check out a different restaurant because there's a promise that it might be better. I'll check out another album because there's a promise that the music will be sweeter. We go back to church because there's a promise of redemption, a better relationship. And Paul and Barnabas made the promise that they aren't going to let the sins of people get in the way of the goodness of God. They weren't going to let what these people did draw them away from the grace and the love and the power of God. Who let them down? Dust. Dust let them down. And what happens next? We see this in Acts 13, 51. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They shook the dust off their feet, moved on, and got filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And some of us today are harboring unforgiveness and pain, and I'm not going to minimize it. But there comes a time where each one of us need to shake the dust off and move on. We've let that past grievance determine who we are for far too long. Some of us have been seriously hurt. And we did a whole load of shaking, some praying, some counseling, some more praying, some more counseling, and some more shaking. But at some point, we have to shake it off. We need to shake it off to be filled with joy, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know anyone who is a joyful person who holds a grudge. It's not easy. It's hard work, but it is essential. And I'm not saying this as some subjective preacher that's just kind of casting aspersions onto a problem that I'm assuming people are having. I'm living it right now. And you know, at preaching school, they always say, don't preach from your wounds, but preach from your scars. So don't preach when things are fresh, but preach when they're healed. But the problem is, is I I said we're going to be preaching this a, a few months ago, and I didn't expect the past couple of weeks to happen. There's some hurt that I'm experiencing right now from Christians who I've looked up to for many, many, many years. And I know and love and trust them, but I feel hurt and I feel let down by them again. And I need to shake it off. I need to pray and remember that they are dust as much as I am. I need to shake it off to contend for the joy of the Lord. But I'm fully aware that some people here today And you have serious wounds and scars from Christians in leadership and Christians in community. And if that's you, if you're grieving something I or another leader has done, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what scenarios, but if, if I've been part of it, if I've played into it, if I've triggered any of that, then I'm sorry. Because I know for a fact that I have not always done things well, even in the short window of time since it's been open since 2020. I've missed the mark on some things. I've made unpopular decisions. But why in this church, some of us have experienced leaders in our past have abused their power and their privilege and they've hurt people. And sometimes Christians are unkind and uncaring. It's not right. It's not good. It's not the way of God. It's not the way of Jesus. And for that, I'm sorry. We've all been hypocrites. At some time, we've all messed up. The only commitment I can give to you as your leader and pastor is that when I do get it wrong, which I will, I can promise you, when I say the wrong thing, when I do the wrong thing, when I fall short, I will apologize as I've had to do almost weekly since opening those doors in 2020. And two weeks ago, I had to apologize to two people for something that I failed to do for them. And I had to ask for their forgiveness because it meant a lot. And I was met with an overwhelming, of course, don't worry about it. But because of that, is what, that is what sets us apart from any other social club. Right? That's what sets you apart from your pottery club or your wood-turning crew or whatever club you're part of. That's what separates us from a normal social club, is we don't, we don't gather ourselves around an infallible, strong leader, but around the perfect person of Jesus Christ who offers forgiveness for all. As Jesus has forgiven me, so I forgive you. The reality is this, if you are struggling with your faith because of people, maybe consider that your faith may have been in people when it should have been in Jesus. And for several years after my mentor of many years had an affair, I really struggled with anything slightly spiritual. Now, if you're new to church, that might be weird. You're like, you're a Christian. At the time, I was training to be a vicar. I was doing a master in theology. But anytime anything got a bit ethereal, a bit charismatic, a bit spiritual, I would shut down. Why? Well, because my mentor was a guru around that kind of stuff. And in my head, I played this equation out that if that stuff doesn't protect you from affairs and infidelity, then to be honest, I'm not interested. I'd much rather have the tangible stuff. Give me the Bible and a bit of communion, and that's it. The harsh reality was that my faith, or at least part of it, was in a broken, dusty person, rather than the perfect person of Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with your faith today because of people, maybe consider that your faith may have been in people when it should have been in Jesus. And if you feel let down by people, remember that Jesus never lets you down. When you're dissatisfied with the way people have acted, look at Jesus and the way that he lived. Look at how he loved and confronted the hypocrisy. Look how he changes us. Look at how he confronted those who abused power. Look how he defended the widows, the orphans, and the poor. When people around Jesus who thought they were the most removed from Jesus, their experience of him was that they liked him. If you feel far away from Jesus because what people have done, you're in Jesus' club. Because he loved those people. He loved the sinners. He was mocked by the religious people for hanging out with sinners, being called the friend of sinners as an insult. He spent time with the prostitutes, the sinners, and the broken. Everywhere Jesus went, he showed compassion for the hurt and the broken and the lost. And he continues to today. He hates the hypocrisy that we all show. But he has unlimited grace for any sinner in need of forgiveness. He continues to love. He continues to heal, and he continues to show his love to the broken. That's how good he is. We'll all get it wrong because we're all broken. We'll get it wrong because we're big old bags of dirt. We'll get it wrong because we're sinners in need of redemption. 
And so I'm going to give you four super quick tips on what to do with some of that hurt. The first is this, to remember that the church is broken. Now, as I said, when I was 16, I bought my first guitar. And the main reason I wanted to learn guitar was not to impress girls at Christian camp, but it's because I heard this riff. Listen to it all day. That'll do. Thank you, DJ. Round of applause for DJ. And the thing is, is when you're 16, you hear that riff and you got a bit of money from working at a butchery, then um, you can buy your first guitar. And so I went into the local music shop and I picked up a guitar. And they always have a small stool in a guitar shop. And you pick up the guitar, I put it around my shoulders. So I think I like this one, mate. I think I like this one. He's like, well, cool, give it a go. And some there, I'm sat like this. The thing is that that guitar shop, um, Laura's brother, my wife's brother, was the, the guy who's a guitar salesman. And he pointed when I played that riff at this sign behind me that said, no smells like teen spirit, no smoke on the water, and nothing from Green Day. Because it, all he gets is every single day, a load of 16-year-old boys who pick up the random guitar and they play one of those three, um, they play those riffs, and they, they're so used to hearing them over and over again. And the thing is, I played that riff super badly. But his response was not to say, I no longer want to listen to Nirvana anymore. His response wasn't because that imitation of Nirvana is so poor, I'm never going to listen to Nirvana again. Or that imitation of Smoke on the Water means I'm never going to listen to Deep Purple again. The thing is, sometimes we blame Jesus for seeing his imitation be done poorly. Sometimes people are imitating Jesus so poorly, and we go, well, you know what, if that imitation is that poor, then Jesus must be awful. Remember that the church is broken. It's a broken vessel, it's a broken bride, but yet Jesus loves it. Jesus loves it, and we're, we're told this picture in the Bible that one day at this wedding feast, Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. That means he'll fix it all up, he'll, he'll mend all the broken parts, he'll do all that stuff. And yes, for sure, we're on this journey towards redemption. We have to contend for, for uh, reconciliation in relationships, for fixed, right, um, right thinking about relationships. We have to contend for that. But there will come times where we'll, get, where we'll get broken, we'll get hurt by others in the church. Remember, that that's why we're here. We're here. We're a hospital full of broken people, being mended up, yes, and being sent out. But then we get broken again and we have to come back into the church and we get fixed up and we go out. It's a revolving door of brokenness. Remember that the church is broken. But the second tip is this, and it's the phrase we use a lot in our household, keep your side of the bed clean. And we talk about this stuff when it comes to like conflict like if, if, you're, if you have any like family rifts or you have some kind of, just make sure your side of the bed, bed is clean. And in short, what it means is don't fall into sin because of somebody else's sin. So don't, because, because a, a pastor has said something to you or because someone in the church has said something to you or because you're hurt by another Christian, what they've done with you, don't let that cause you to sin. Don't go on to some gossip reel on Instagram or Facebook. and go, rah, rah, rah. Don't let it cause you to sin. Don't start acting out in rage and malice because of what that person has done. There are times when it is totally acceptable and reasonable to leave a church 
because of the way it's being led or because the activity in that church being at odds with your ethics. Totally right and totally appropriate. But remember, this is the exception and extreme. It's not when the carpet changes color and you don't like it or when they introduce that new song that doesn't quite vibe with you or whether it's because you're not given microphone opportunities. That's not why we leave church community. If we're involved in church, we're involved in a family and it's a unit And the book of Colossians says it like this, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. In this translation, it says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Keep your side of the bed clean. Do all you can, because you can control your own response. You can't control the other person. Do all you can to make sure that you're going after right relationships. An example of this is I've got a sister who completely estranged to. I haven't seen her for a number of years. But I still text every birthday. I still leave voicemails. I still send gifts at Christmas. Never hear any response, but that's not why I do it. I do it so that when she does need to reach out, that there hasn't been this void in relationship. My side of the bed is clean. My side of the bed is tidy. Is it hurtful? Is it, does, it, does it cause you pain? Yeah, of course it does. I've got three nieces and nephews that I've never, I haven't seen for the past few years. But keep our sides of the bed clean. Contend for reconciliation. The third tip is this. Let the pastor or person know. And this is where it gets hard and tricky. Because if you let the person or pastor know that who has hurt you, you might be right. And if you're right and correct, then it will be a chance for them to hopefully repent or change or grow. When someone comes to me and says, Alex, I think you missed the mark there, it gives me a chance to either be like, yeah, I totally missed it. And I can grow and build and and change. But also you may be wrong. It might just be your perception of an event. And if so, it's a chance for healing in relationship. Jesus says it this way, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. I love this detail. Jesus has to specify because that's not the way we like to do it, is it? It's like, maybe, maybe I could chat to a few people about it first. Maybe I could sort it out. Maybe, maybe I could ask someone, what do you think about what that person's done? And then we can have a little gossip about it for a bit. And then, and then I will, once I've got the, the grace and the courage, then I can talk to them. And then it says this, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Or other translation says, you have gained a brother or you've gained a friend. And I love that. I want more friends and more brothers and more sisters in my life. Let the person know. Use your voice. And then fourthly, create the culture. Create the culture, be part of creating a culture that pursues reconciliation in the small things, not just the big. Too often, we only hear too late. We only hear, and, and, and the email that no pastor wants to receive is, uh, dear Alex, I'm leaving the church because X, Y, and Z. It's like, cool, you've already made the decision. There's nothing I can do to change that right there. What is way more helpful is months earlier, when the emotion is starting to bubble, when the feeling of discontentment is starting to rise, that they say, hey, Alex, or hey, Kirsty, or hey, Laura, or hey, group leader, I'm just starting to feel out of odds with what's going on here. Is this right? Is this, is this my perception? Is, is this my responsibility? Is this something that I need to own? Because there is a chance there for communication about the why. And it might be a vision-based thing. It might be a values-based thing. It might be, you know what, actually, the way this church does things, it might be just a bit different for you. Or it might be an opportunity for correction, for a problem to be highlighted or maybe even solved, but even before that, don't take part in gossip, 
Don't take joy out of brothers and sisters failing. Don't take part in online debates about prominent Christians who fall. Don't share that content around. Don't play a part in the devil's schemes to break up the family of God and make every effort to be more concerned over your own walk with Jesus than others. The writer of Ephesians puts it this way. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave. It's hard work, but it's important. It's hard work, but it's worth contending for. Because Jesus says that people outside of the church, they will know that you are my disciples, not by the songs you sing, not by the coffee you serve, not by the cookies you warm up before church, not by what you wear, but how you have love for one another. And the way that true love is shown is the way that we're able to manage some of this pain together and contend for healing in relationships, doing the hard work of that stuff. 